Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Dykes lofts it in. Deflects off a player. It's stabbed towards goal and it's in. And it's Marvin Bartley of all people who scored here. The former Hibs man enjoys that one in front of the home supporters. There's a little deflection between two players and it fell very kindly to Marvin Bartley. Hello and welcome to the latest in the lockdown interviews. My name is Sam Davis and this is Back of the Net. And on this particular show, well, we've got an hour-long plus edition and it's a candid interview with a Cherries midfielder that graced the pitch in the late noughties and early tens. I think it's a good measure of a player that once they've left the club, if fans are saying, you know what, we really need a player like X in the middle, or we really need a left-back like Y, or, you know what, I wish we had a goal scorer like Zed. This person, as a centre midfielder, well, we never really found someone to replace him. I mean, Harry Arter did come in, and he was fantastic at what he did. But when Jefferson Lerma stepped in not so long ago, people thought, oh my goodness, he's that kind of player. He breaks up play, he's aggressive, he's forceful, he can pass. Just a really... Just a, just a total menace in the middle of the park. And I'm talking about, of course, Marvin Bartley. And he joined us and he was brilliantly honest. Now, got to give you a heads up. The audio in this interview is not particularly great. So interviewing him is myself, Jeff Hayward and Michael Dunn. Marvin was on an iPhone and didn't have any earpods or earphones, which meant it was a bit annoying because his microphone was picking up the speaker sounds when we were speaking. So there's a bit of audio feedback to deal with. But we've cleaned it up as best we can. If you want to watch, you can do so. It's at youtube.com forward slash AFCB podcast. But some of the stories he told here are cracking, including the time under Jimmy Quinn when he brought his dog to training. (laughs) 
Can you imagine Eddie doing that? Uh, no. Warren Cummings got so frustrated he wound the dog up so much so it lashed out mid-session. Wow, what a story. So, let's enjoy a chat with Marvin Bartley. Marvin Bartley, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, very good and really appreciate you joining us today. Um, It's an absolute pleasure once again. You come um, after some AFC Bournemouth breaks like uh, Tommy Elphick, uh, Matt Holland, so you're fitting right in. (laughs) And uh, let me also bring in uh, Jeff Hayward because he is here as well. Jeff, how are you? Really good, thanks Sam. Good, good. And also this week, uh, we've got Michael Dunn uh, from all departments as well. Michael, how's it going? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Sam. Missing football a bit, but let's be talking to Marvin and yourself tonight. Yeah, good, good. I am loving the backdrop, Michael. That's that's like a home <laughs> studio waiting to happen, isn't it? That's uh, my 13 year old son's bedroom. I, I kicked oh. him out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> once. So, it would be my bedroom if the wife would allow it. <laughs> so Marvin how have you been doing how's um how's it all been since this lockdown it it must be extremely difficult yeah it's been a, a hugely frustrating time um you know not just for me for other footballers as well um mm. especially not knowing when we're going back up in Scotland it's been slightly different to obviously what's happening in England um the 10th of June's kind of the date that's been been pushed around in order for us to go back but at the moment it's just hard you know you, you're, you're trying to to keep fit trying to keep running but with no actual data when you're going back the motivations are very difficult to come by yeah definitely um it must be really difficult so throughout the evening we're going to be asking you a number of questions regarding your time at AFC Bournemouth but I want to just quickly focus on beforehand um so how did your football career start because I gather there was quite a few seasons in the non-league before you made the step up to league football is that right yeah, that's correct. Um, obviously, the traditional route, uh, or the normal route, so to speak, is seen going through a scholarship at uh, a professional club. I actually did an uh, academy-type thing at a college, um, which was, was unpaid. Um, three days football, two days college work, in order to work towards a BTEC. I did that for two years at Hayes. Um, I then left Hayes to join a team called Burnham. I was actually released by Burnham at 18 years of age. Um, I then moved back to Hayes before going on to Hampton and Richmond. Um, and it was in my season really at Hampton and Richmond where, you know, football started to to really appeal to me. And I suppose I started to appeal to clubs higher up the ladder. Mm. Um, I was offered a trial at MK Dons under Martin Allen. Uh, I went to that. Um, he said he wanted to sign me. Uh, he said to come back next, I think it was next Thursday. So it was a week from when I played the game. And I think on the Wednesday or whatever, he was basically, he went off to Leicester. Uh, which obviously killed that dream, but opened up the Bournemouth dream for me. Yeah, I read a story, Marvin, that you were fitting double glazing in the morning and then went for your trial at Bournemouth in the afternoon. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I was I was actually working at uh, uh, Reading Windows, it was called at the time, and I was, yeah, I was fitting double glazing in conservatories. And I'll never forget my first trial game. Because um, I, I, what happened was I completed a week at Bournemouth on trial while I was there full time. Um, I then had to go back to work, so I couldn't do the second week. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was at work and they invited me down for the Weymouth game. So I, I worked in the day, drove straight down. I remember I got cramped in a Weymouth game probably after about 25 minutes, my first trial game. So <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't the best impression uh, to give to the club. But, you know, luckily, Kevin Bond saw enough in me and invited me back to, for the Southampton game. 
which was on the Saturday. So yeah, I was, I was working alongside it. Good stuff. We had a, a comment in from Al Gard, and uh, he was very complimentary to you. He said, uh, Marv, great committed player. Uh, but he said he thought it took you a little while to step up from non-league. And he said, how difficult was that you know, progression from non-league to AFC Bournemouth? It, it was a huge progression. Um, like I touched on there, you know, I was struggling with cramp, playing against the likes of Weymouth when I was working in, in the day. Coming to full-time training um, from being part-time, I was struggling with the workload. You know, my body was struggling to get used to the workload. Um, back back at this point, you know, the stuff about hydration, nutrition wasn't really out there, especially at Bournemouth because we had limited money at the time. Mm. Um, so it was extremely difficult, not only on a playing side, a mental side to stay focused, as weird as it sounds, for, for training intensity um, of the levels that I, I was training at. And yeah, just my body, my body really, really did struggle at the start. He also went on to say, by the way, uh, can I also say I saw you live in a Hibernian shirt, uh, though I had had a few scotches. But yeah, he was very, very complimentary of you. Um, so, Michael, do you remember the time where, where Marvin signed and you know, what were your thoughts at the time? Well, I was pleased. We were desperate, really. We were going for a, a really difficult phase of the football club. We'd had a 10-point deduction, administration, and just one problem after another. And it went on for a, two or three more years after that. Um, but Marvin, what was it like working and playing under Kevin Bond? He tends to be quite fondly remembered by the players. Is that, is that your experience? Yeah, um, you know, Kevin was my first full-time manager. So for me, I, I had nothing to kind of base it on. Um, he, was, he was extremely strict um, in the way he went about, you know, his training and, uh, you know, how he wanted us to go about our work also. Um, obviously, his hands were tied pretty much. You know, he was, he was working with players from the non-league. Um, you know, players like Darren Anton who probably come in the other way in their career. Um, but yeah, Kevin was a was a good manager for me. Um, he, he taught me a lot, and you know, he kind of led by example. Did you find him very outspoken at all? Um, uh, it, it's it's difficult for me because, as I said, he's my first full time manager. So mm. whatever he was saying, I, I was I was taking taking yeah. in kind of thing. Um, you know, I probably do remember one or two occasions now you have said that where I think a few of the more seasoned professionals found him that way. Um, and I know a few fans at the time probably thought he, he fancied himself a bit too much. And, you know, he probably saw himself as a Mourinho when he really wasn't doing the job of a Mourinho. Yeah, it's, um, it's quite interesting because we uncovered this clip of Kevin Bond. Uh, this was back, um, yeah, I mean, it must have been sort of around the same time. And uh, this is a clip from a press conference, which I'm going to play now. And uh, he loses his rag very quickly with a journalist that maybe hadn't um, researched her material. So take a listen to this. I just asked quickly ahead of the broadcast again, just in case I don't get down here. Um, I was just relative, uh, reliably informed even that uh, the manager of Doncaster was here for 23 years. Right. Um, do you think that will be a t particularly um, good game? Because, of course, it's at Dean's Court as well. Are you... You can... Are you... Not on mic or not on mic work? No, no. Are you, are you the... Is it the Wave 105? Wave 105. Are you the Wave 105 sports reporter? Ish. I was going to say, it must be a little bit ish if it's only just come to your attention that well, Jono Driscoll <laughs> was actually a manager <laughs> down at Bournemouth. I know, I know. I'm what sorry. I, to I research? do Pompey and Saints. What happened I to Lisa? Scary 
scary time, <laughs> not really uh, knowing her stuff. But um, yeah, no, that's why I asked that question because I just wonder if you carried that sort of you know demeanour into the like, into the dressing room. But Jeff, um, you're going to ask a question about that first season, I think. Really. Yeah, well, I, I was going to ask, how did you feel coming from non-league to be lining up with Darren Anderton, who played X number of internationals for England and was just a genuine amazing player? Do you know what it was? It was extremely scary, uh, even even training with Darren. Um, I remember me and Jason Pierce used to travel together. You know, I was in Basingstoke at the time, and, and he was in Fleet. So we used to meet along the M3, and we used to always talk about Daz because at this, at this stage, we're early on in our careers, we really didn't understand football the way we do today, and we were like, D -d "Does he hate us?" You know, but it, it wasn't that. He was just so demanding. You know, he wanted us to be the best Marvin Bartley, the best Jason Pierce he possibly could be. And he demanded that from us. But because we weren't used to this, we thought it was something personal. And it's only after, you know, being around Daz a little bit longer that we realised, you know, he doesn't hate us. He wants the best for us. And especially years later, we look back on it. And I spoke to Jason the other day about it. Um, but it was nerve-wracking. You know, you, no matter what pass you played to him, no matter what you did in the game, you knew he had been around players that were doing your job ten times better. 100 times better maybe when he's playing for England. So it, it was nerve-wracking more than anything else. Well, as I said earlier, that season was really the beginning of the difficult period. And what was it like playing under the burden of the 10 position with administration looming? Did that affect the players? Um, me, personally, no. I was just happy to be within the club, to be within the professional environment. Um, I didn't, it sounds ridiculous, but I didn't really think about points during that season because I said I was new to it. Everything was exciting for me. Um, I think a lot of the younger boys were the same as me. Maybe you call it naive, but I think in this situation, you know, we just want to go and get as many points and, and make the club and the fans proud of us. Um, we probably didn't realise the severity of the minus 10 until we got to the end of the season. But certainly going into it, we were just like, you know what, let's just go and get as many points as we can. And we believed we could beat anybody. Mm. Um, not because we were the greatest team in the world, but just because we were just we were given this platform by Bournemouth. And we thought, you know what, we can make them proud and we'll do that to the best of our abilities. And unfortunately, at the end, we fell short. But definitely going into it, we, we, we did believe or we probably didn't think about it. So we were just, you know, going out there and trying to play our football. Yeah, that must have been a, a soul-destroying experience, that last game against Carlisle, where you so nearly did stay up. Yeah, it was a. Uh, it was so hard to deal with, you know, um, being so close to to staying up in such difficult circumstances. And I'll never forget that Carlisle game. Not, not for anything that that happened in the game. I know we, we've travelled in great numbers. You know, the Bournemouth fans and everything were there, but it, it was after, and it's an experience that I'll never forget. I remember went into the dressing room, and I hope these players don't mind me saying it now. Um, you know, me, uh, Sam Vokes. Um, might have been Joe Partington, there's a couple of other young boys, and we just burst into tears because we had failed, you know, and I was, I'm probably the oldest of that kind of group of players, mm. and Vokes, he was really in a bad way because, you know, he'd been such a young player who had been playing so well, we knew that this was the end of the road for him, whether we stayed up or not, you know, we knew the club were going to sell him because financially we needed the money, and it almost kind of felt to us after that game, you know, the boy band being broken up, you know, in terms of we had we had a young group of players who all come together for this season and we're going to be broken up already. And it, it was so hard to take, you know, first season professional football, you've been relegated um, for, for me and Piercy, but just 
the friendship that we had within that group and you know it, it was so hard being in that dressing room and, and the boys were all emotional hmm. so i mean what were your feelings about sort of kevin bond's treatment and then obviously i mean off the pitch there was a lot that was going on um sports sticks and then the arrival of jimmy quinn as well um was that quite a distraction or you know for you as a footballer did you just carry on and keep playing no it was definitely a distraction it was definitely a distraction um i think the sport six they may have came in with the best intentions um but pretty quickly we realized it was, it was full of lies mm. um you know i i'll hold my hands up to anybody who buys a football club and, and tries to try to save us in that situation but i think that honesty was, was missing from from them as a company um and, and we realized that pretty quickly you know they were promising things that that couldn't really happen and promising things that we didn't need to be promised to us. You know, we just wanted our wages paid. You know, and they were going about all these other things. Um, you know, the biggest sponsorship in the club's history, we want to rival Premier League clubs. Um, I think they were trying to do something with JD Sports. We're going to get these cards, you can spend an X amount in there a month. And it, you know, it's all free to, to the players. And it sounds brilliant, you know, even me saying it now, it sounds brilliant, but it, it was, it was, it couldn't have been further from the truth. Mm. You know, um, so I, I just felt that, they, that from the start, we kind of saw that there was holes in their plan. And, and the, the Jimmy Quinn appointment, um, you know, a man who's played a lot more games than me. I mean, he's obviously managed at Redden and stuff. I used to go and watch him, but it, it was a disaster. Um, being in within that, it was a disaster in terms of, I really felt that he had almost been forced into a job rather than wanting it. And that might sound weird to some people, but he didn't want to be there. You know, there was no structure to what we were doing. There was no care in what we were doing. You know, it's almost like when someone says, um, you know, someone's cooked a, mi a meal with love. There was no love within this meal. They <laughs> threw the eggs in there with the shells on and everything, you know. And that, that, that really was, it, it wasn't great. And, you know, that, that kind of went with the Sport 6 thing. It was a disaster as well. And I was speaking again to Jason the other day, and the best thing that Jimmy Quinn probably did in it, his time at the club was when he used to bring his dog to training, basically, and dogs used to run around. He used to walk his dog when we were training. So he probably <laughs> no way. That's hilarious. I, I promise you. And the best thing his dog ever did was we were training, and Warren comes to trying to wind the dog up, and the dog attacked him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. Oh, hilarious. That was the best thing under the Jimmy Quinn uh, era. Um, but, yeah, in terms of his managing and stuff, it no, it wasn't. It, it was... Far from being great. So when when um, when Eddie came uh, to take you on, what what did you think? I mean, the players must have been surprised that somebody who was as young as they they were in many cases actually managing them. Yeah, because um, obviously Eddie was there under Kevin Bond and Rob Newman when I first signed. Um, so I had a lot of contact with him there because he used to train younger players. Um, he used to do extra sessions with him. And then obviously when Sport 6 came in, they didn't want Eddie in and around the first team. So I think he dropped to do the academy stuff. So we used to bump into Eddie time to time because he used to be bringing the academy kit from the weekend in to get washed. Um, so then, yeah, he steps into the role. Um, and I'll be honest, you know, he, he comes in, he looks about 15 years of age. <laughs> and you think, you know, how is he going to do it in, in this job? And... Do you know what Eddie did? He didn't come in and tear anything up. What he did do is he put structure straight into what we were doing and he wanted to do the job. You know, this wasn't, sorry, it wasn't a job, it was his life. And you could instantly tell that. And that got a reaction from the boys straight away because his passion, 
his drive, you know, his hunger to succeed. It was all there for us all to see. And we've gone from one end of the spectrum with Jimmy Quinn, who was walking his dog when we were training, to Eddie Howe. This was his life. We were almost like his kids, even though some of the boys like dads are older than him. What was the feeling in the dressing room? Because obviously we started the season on minus 17. We'd had a difficult first half of the season under Jimmy Quinn. Before Eddie came in, did, did you think that we were doomed? Yeah, um, especially if Jimmy Quinn uh, stayed in the role. Um, definitely believed we were doomed. But I think it was weeks before Jimmy Quinn leaving, I think it was obviously he wanted to leave. I think he wanted, uh, I, I think he wanted to be pushed rather than walking kind of thing. Not that he had any, um, you know, he, he didn't do job any love at the start, but even towards the end, he just wasn't bothered. He didn't care. Um, but when Eddie did come in, one thing he did say to us is that, you know what, we might not escape this, but one thing we will do is we remember to give him 100% in trying to escape it. And that's all that, you know, I, I want from you boys is to give me 100% whenever you step out of the pitch, whenever you train. If we don't get out of this, then, you know, it wasn't to be. But if we do go out, get out of this, you'll be remembered forever. It's amazing when um, we chat to former players, they are very quick to uh, you know, comment on how well that Eddie's done. And from the off, they could tell that he was going to be something you know, really special just because of his, he's so meticulous. He's really dedicated. That being said, with all the praise that Eddie's got over the years, do you almost feel sorry for JT somewhat? With the fact that he's often overlooked and people talk about, you know, Eddie how this and Eddie how that. No, but they're, they're a partnership, you know. Mm. Um, and if you were to speak to JT, he wouldn't care either, you know. Neither of them want the attention of being, oh, you know, the, the press to talk about them. Eddie would be exactly the same. If he could go under the radar and probably not even know his name, he'd probably prefer that. Mm. Um, him and JT work very well together because neither of them are, want to grab the attention. Neither, neither of them really want to be seen as a lead singer. You know, they go about their work um, in an extremely professional manner. Um, but, you know, everyone who knows football and all you uh, Bournemouth fans will know that JT is just as important as Eddie, you know. And, and I think him knowing that people know his importance is, is enough for him, you know. As I said, he, he doesn't want to be known and being put in a paper old Jason Tindall's the best manager ever. You know, he doesn't care about that. And that's, I know that from working with JT, not only at Bournemouth, but also at Burnley, you know. You know, they're just hard-working individuals who are leading a great club at the moment. Uh, Michael, were you surprised when Eddie got the call? And um, how impressed were you in his, uh, in his early stint at AFC Bournemouth? I was shocked. I think like most people, I was at a New Year's Eve party. A good friend of mine, who I still go to matches with sometimes, came in and told me he was wearing a, a, a fancy dress outfit. <laughs> it was all a bit surreal. Um, yeah, and it just seemed like we had nowhere else to turn. It was sort of the last chance, and Eddie obviously had no experience, so it was, it was a real surprise. I mean, I think the first couple of games we lost, and they offered Eddie the job, which I think the fans weren't too disappointed with that, even though it still seemed like we are in a very desperate situation because um, it seemed like the mood had changed around the ground. Eddie was obviously so popular as a player as well. And um, what did you think, Marvin, after the first couple of games? Because we lost them both. Did you feel the problem with turning? Being within, within the dressing room, I knew things were going to change. So, yes, we lost the first couple of games. And it's, I get it. It's a lot harder for fans because you're only worried about our results on a Saturday. But within the, within the squad, um, um, on the training ground, we could see a change was coming. And when Jimmy Crimmer were losing games, we were thinking, wow, how are we going to you know, win the next one or pick up the next point? Under Eddie, we knew it was going to change. We knew 
that we were getting used to what he wanted us to do. We knew we were getting fitter, we knew we were getting better as players and as a team collectively. So there wasn't any panic. And I think that, that helps massively. When you can see where you're heading, it's a lot different when you're losing games to when you can't see where you're heading and you're losing games because there, there wasn't a panic. There was no panic within us because we knew we would start to win games and start to pick up points. How did you feel, Marvin, to be the, the player that makes the first assist in Eddie Howe's first game as a manager ever? No, I think that was my last assist. I'm glad you told me that. I'm trying to dig that out. I had no clue. It must have, been, it must have come off a tackle or something like that. Wow. Oh, well, I so, I'm pretty sure it's you. You're on the right wing. You cross it in for Danny Hollands who, who tucks it in. Maybe I was in my younger days, so my legs, my legs worked a bit better. So yeah, it, it probably worked. <laughs> how um, how did you see your role in the team, and you know the way it sort of knitted together with um, yourself, Anton, and um, you know also Hollands, as we mentioned. Yeah, um, you know I kind of knew what my role was when when brought to the club by Kevin Bond. Um, as I said, I worked with Eddie closely when he was a coach, um, but when he then put his new team together. I never forget the, the signing of Anton Robinson, and this is probably a story I've never even told. Um, panic setting for me because I, I thought my place was in jeopardy. Um, I knew Anton was, you know, similar to me uh, in, in the way I played. And I remember I went to Eddie, I got my agent to go to Eddie at the time, and I said, you know, what's the future for me? Are you basically signing Anton to replace me? Do you want me uh, to leave the club? And I remember Eddie's answer was, you know, this is football, we're always trying to evolve. He said, as a manager, we won't always get things right when we bring in new players, but it's up to you to prove us wrong. You know, we're not here to only have two centre midfielders, so to speak, and you to play every single week. There has to be some sort of competition. And that kind of stuck with me because I thought, okay, you know what, I'll I'll fight for my place. Um, But at the time, you know, I shouldn't even have been asking these questions because it is football and, you know, managers do sign players. Um, but listen, we all three of us worked together, you know, whether the pairing was me and Danny, Anton and Danny, or, or me, and, me and Anton. So it, it was good to have that kind of, uh, that kind of fighting for places. Um, I think it brought out the best in all three of us. And it just meant that none of us could really slack off of our game. And, you know, it obviously worked because we, we, we managed to turn over the, the huge points deduction that we had. With Fletch coming in, it, it, it played a, a huge part in, in us as a team because I, I felt I felt we were, at the time we were a team that could play really good football, but we didn't have that that other option of, you know, throwing the ball forward. And it might not be pretty at times, but we weren't good enough to play the passing game all the way through, but we didn't have the option to, to go long. Um, and, and Fletch coming in, not only with the start of play, but also with experience, was a, was a huge uplift to us uh, as a squad. You know, to have somebody who'd been around and done it and knew what it meant to play for Bournemouth and, you know, wear the kit with pride. Um, he brought professionalism, you know, to the squad. And I think it was a masterstroke uh, bringing him in because, like I said, he, he couldn't last 90 minutes. He knew that. We knew that. But for the coming off the bench as an impact or starting games, you know, he'd give you a good 60 minutes. And, you know, I think we didn't have Fletch, not only because he scored the goal, but just the role he played, you know, even for, to open up defences for Brett and, and so on, and us for a team to get up the pitch. You know, if we didn't have a player like Fletch, you know, we, we would have struggled, definitely. And, you know, it showed with the scoring the only goal of his career at the end. I mean, so what did you feel your role in that team was? Because it was sort of, um, 
you know, hard man tag in midfield, or did you have um, some kind of personality that you lived up to on the football pitch? No, I, yeah, I just was there to break up play. Um, you know, I was probably a bit more box to box in in those times, but initially it was to break up play and get to the to the ball players. You know, that's the kind of role I played within uh, non league when I was was there and. You know, I wasn't going to change that coming into the football league because I've been signed as the Marvin Bartley playing in non-league and, and playing with that style. Um, you know, I try to get forward up and down because, like I said, I, I had good energy. Uh, once I got rid of the cramp and got used to full-time training, mm. so yeah, I thought that was my, that was my role. You know, break up the play when I possibly could, and, and if I could drive the team up the pitch, then also to do that. Um, I remember going to Dagenham and Redbridge um, in February. I think it was two thousand and nine, and we won. 1-0, very late goal from Mark Molesley. In fact, that goal was a very significant goal in my life because I was living in London at the time and I left the ground in a kind of ecstasy that I've only experienced the football a few times and my main thought was, apart from I was delighted that we won, was that I was definitely moving back to Bournemouth and I did so a few months later. But was there a point in the season that, that you felt that the players thought, yeah, this is it, we're actually going to do it? Yeah, it was, it was definitely a turning point when, when Molesley did that. You know, he was, again, you know, we speak about the, the influence of Fletch, but Molesley as well just came with the, the kind of style of, of a street player. You know, he used to dribble past players like he's playing, you know, with his friends down from the park. Um, definitely there was a, a huge turning point when, when he did score that goal. But I think, I think for me, personally, when I felt that, you know, we could do this, I think, like you said, we lost the first two games. But I think like maybe the next six or seven games after that, we maybe won four or five, you know, and the results really began to pick up. Um, I think at that point, not only did I think we could, you know, get out of this, I also had a manager that I wanted to play for and a manager who, you know, wanted to be in the job. And I keep referring to that. It makes such a huge difference to us as players, knowing that, you know, you've got somebody leading you who wants to do the job rather than being forced into it. But no, definitely, I think by the time Molesy scored that goal, um, I think, me personally, I was already believing, but scoring so late, you know, it feels like you've got nine points for it and you kind of look at it after and you get three points, but the feeling it gives you and the boost it gives you, it, it can't be matched. Mm. It's interesting uh, you talking about, you know, like Eddie being a manager that you really wanted to play for. Um, obviously, we don't know how the season's going to pan out at the moment, but I think Eddie's loyalty to the club is unquestionable. So if we did get relegated, he would stick with us. I'm sure that a number of players would go. Do you think that having Eddie as the manager would actually be a big lure for players who are looking to sign for a club in the championship? And they, if they've got a number of teams to play for, they think, well, yeah, I really want to play for Eddie Howe. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think in terms of recruitment, I think once you meet Eddie, um, you know, you, you want to play for him. You know, at this point, maybe not a lot of people knew about him as a man or as a manager. But when you meet him and, you know, you see how enthusiastic he is, you know, you can't you can only be impressed by this you can only want to be involved in this um you know he had a clear vision of the journey he wanted to take the football club on um which he's managed to do and better um so you know it's he kind of like talked the talk but he's also walked the walk in in producing the results um and as a football player that's all you want you know a man that's going to be honest um hard working because being a footballer i know not people say oh you know it's the easiest job in the world it really isn't when you're you're out there doing the hard yards and when you've, got a, when you've got a manager who respects what you're doing and also encourages you and also guides you, you know, it's, there's, no better, there's no better feeling as a player and it makes the hard times a lot easier. 
What were your feelings, Marvin, of the Chester and the Grimsby games? Did, did you feel confident going into those two games or were the players incredibly nervous? No, there were, there were, there were huge nerves. Um, you know, if, I, if I sit here now and say we were, we were confident, I'll be lying to you. Um, <laughs> I probably think, you know, as a, as a squad, I don't know if there's been uh, squads any more nervous than going into those games. Um, we had an expectance upon ourselves because we, we believed in ourselves that we wanted to win them and we could win them. But the nerves within the camp, you know, leading up to it in training and stuff like that were, were unreal. You know, they're off the scale. Um, and I think that's only normal. You know, and you had the older boys trying to almost like play it down, but you could see the nerves within them. So, you know, as a young man looking up to seasoned professionals and seeing them nervous, I'm thinking, wow, like, I'm right to feel like this. Do you know what I mean? And, and everyone kind of felt the same. We were all nervous. The whole camp was nervous, you know, and if anyone tells you any different, they're a liar. So we stayed up. Fantastic achievement. And, you know, still very fondly remembered by all of the fans and around the football club. Um, and then we went into the summer and pre-season training. And obviously we did get promoted, which I'm sure we're going to come on to talk about at the end of that season. But that summer, that pre-season, how confident were the players that they could have a go at getting into League One? Um, no, we were, we were massively confident. Um, you know, to, to stay up when you've had uh, minus 17, you know, you can only be confident, um, especially the way we ended the season. Um, and as a squad, we kind of said to ourselves, you know, whatever happens next season, as long as we start on a level playing field, we can go up. Um, and, and we definitely, definitely believe that. Um, and I think having that minus 17 uh, built a togetherness, um, you know, our players to show characters, their character. Um, and I think, although that was a really bad time for the club, having that minus 17, I think in terms of the next season, it was massive to us because we'd been through an experience what most professional footballers will never go through and it brought us closer together and there was a huge bond there but it also brought out a huge confidence and I think we took that into the next season. What always strikes me about that season and I was looking back at it earlier today were, were the number of quality goals that we scored. It must have been a joy to have people like Brett Pittman and Feeney. Brett Pittman was probably the most uh, frustrating player to play with because he constantly threw his hands in the air, he constantly walked around with the salt it was almost like he was in detention, and the detention was he had to play football. Honestly, like, and then he would just score this one goal, and you'd be like, Brett, if you, you were just weren't so moaning and just got on with the game, you'd probably score three times as many goals. But honestly, his finishing, even all the players I played with now, and I played with you know, some top quality finishers, I think Brett's probably the best finisher. But he just did it with a salt, you know. People say, oh, yeah, people play football with a smile. He was the opposite. He was so <laughs> mining. You wouldn't get the ball in his throw his hands in the air. And I remember the amount of times in the change room, I said, so if you throw your hands in the air like that, me again, I'm going to pin you against the wall. He didn't care, sort of whatever. And I was like, but what a guy, you know. He, he, he really did. Um, as I said, we had great characters in the dressing room. Having people like Brett, um, Liam Feeney, you know, do, going about their work the way that they were going about it. Like you said, it was a joy to play uh, with them. and. And obviously, like I said earlier, my role was to break up the play, give it to those sorts of players. So it made my job a lot easier, a lot, lot easier having them in there. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the matches um, that you played, Marvin, that didn't go particularly well. Um, Rochdale away, Morecambe away, for example. After a heavy defeat, what's Eddie Howe like? Because he's got this nice guy persona, but is he a teacup thrower in the dressing room or is he very measured even when he's trying to you know give you a rollicking oh don't let the uh the, the schoolboy look for you 
he crossed Eddie. He definitely, definitely knows about it. Yeah. Um, I think that's the best thing about him is that people do see him and say, oh, look at this like cute young looking man in that dressing room. If you if you fail to do your job or if you, you let the team down or yourself down or, or him down or whatever, he will let you know about it. And, um, you know, there's a few times he, he read the Rollicking Act to us and, you know, when you first see him do it, you're like, wow, like he's changed into, who is this man that's in front of me? You know, where's this calm man gone? But he knew to do it at the right time. You know, he wouldn't come in all the time and rollick you uh, for mistakes. He would try and coach you and make you better. But if he told you, you know, two or three times, then he would get frustrated and then he would, he would definitely lose it. The Morecambe one, I remember that. That's the game I got sent off, I think. Yeah. Um, and it was, I remember starting the game and they scored and I was like, because we were confident going to this game. I was like, oh, okay, we'll get back into it. And I think they scored again. I was like, what's mm. going on here? Like, we're in real trouble here. I remember going in for a tackle. And as I was going in for the tackle, probably about a second before I touched the guy, I was like, you're getting sent off here, you're, you're far too late. And it was just me trying to put my stamp on the game and try and wrestle back control of the game. And what made this even worse is that we had our Christmas party uh, in Manchester booked for after this game. So I, I get sent off and I, I'm going to the changing room and I'm thinking, oh, we couldn't have picked a worse time. Honestly, you do pick your moments. I was sitting in the dressing room, and this is the God's on the street. I was sitting in there thinking, you're not going to be allowed out now. Almost like Eddie was my dad. I was like, you're not going to be allowed out. And I remember we played the game, got absolutely battered, and, you know, a few of the younger boys were like, right, we're not going on the Christmas trip. Because what was due to happen was that the club was going to drop us into Manchester on the way back to Bournemouth. And Eddie and the manly teams would sit at the front, and in this day, they said, it wasn't a side, you know, door to get out, so you'd have to walk past it. So Oh my god, like got my fancy dress costume on the back of the bus. I would have to walk past him. We've just been battered, I think was it five one or something or five nil. Yeah. Um I, I can't do this. The older boys were like, No, you're going, like so us young boys, none every single one of you get off the bus. So get on the coach and Eddie's red face, he's been through us, he's been through me for getting sent off and you know, being stupid. Get on the bus and and they say to the driver, right, take us to, to Manchester. And I'm like, forget the hell, boy, you can't do this. Anyway, the bus stops at Manchester. And I'll never forget it. I tried to like slide down in my seat and let the boys walk past me. <laughs> and to me, they all went past me except for Ron Cullens. And he's like, What are you doing? I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> So I've picked up my fancy dress and, and, and my, my overnight bag and I've had to walk past them. And I remember I went past Eddie and, you know, the lads were walking past and saying goodbye. And, and he was literally like this, staring out the window. Wow, and he pays us, and like I, I look back at it now, and if I was a manager, that bus would not have been stopping. But I think he did the right thing. What didn't want to risk doing is stopping the Christmas night party and having a hangover from that, and having boys moaning about that for weeks on end. We've just been beaten. Can't change that. You know, let them go out, and I'll deal with them on you know the Monday or Tuesday, um, which he did. He actually brought in a guy. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. Like a specialist to speak to us, and I remember the guy saying to us. And I cannot believe you went out on a Christmas night out when you got beat by whatever by Morecambe. So uh, yeah, it was it was a learning curve for us all as players. Um, but you know, it's one of those things. Yeah, Tony, a regular podcast uh, contributor, actually uh, sent a message regarding that, and uh, he WhatsApp saying, uh, "So how many points did it take you to actually help you to get over that sending off at Morecambe?" <laughs> well, I'll let him know. It was only one point. I'm not a huge drinker, so literally, ah. you know. <laughs> 
one pint is, is me over the edge, so I probably probably thought we won the game rather than losing it. Um, but no, I was I was re- reminded rather um, earlier on in the, the next week that we'd lost the game and I'd done the Christmas party. Um, but yeah, on, on Christmas night, I'm probably half a pint that I was I was wearing yeah. the fairy. Um, what were your memories of the Burton game? Because totally different experience going away from home for that one, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, amazing. Um, it just felt right going and, you know, getting promoted to that ground. We'd gone there, it was a relatively new ground at the time. You know, the pitch was lovely. It was, it was a lovely day. You know, again, the fans had travelled in numbers. And it just felt like we're going to do this. We're going to go go on and, and, and win this game and, and gain promotion. Um, it seemed like that you know everything was set. You know the scene was set for us to, to go and do it. And and what a day! You know what a fantastic day with all the trouble that the club had had. You know in previous years. Um, you know I, I believe it, it started that you know the upward spiral the club are currently on, and to be a part of it was fantastic. And you know grumpy guts Brett uh, scores the goal. Um, <laughs> so it was it was brilliant. Brett, Brett, Brett does. Um, I actually saw it on a picture of the day and I sent it to Fiends because he was actually getting thrown onto the floor and I was in the background and I was loving that. That was the best picture of the day for me. Um, but no, it's fantastic. Marvin, was it another half pint of beer celebration that night or did you go a bit a bit bigger? Um, I, I don't think we were allowed to drink on the way home. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember. Mm. I think we had a few drinks within the, within the dressing room, but I think a couple of the boys wanted to, the older boys wanted to drop, uh, stop off rather for, for some beers. Um, I, I don't think we were allowed, but I remember drinking in, in the dressing room, and I'm pretty sure that <laughs> I could be wrong. But Jace had a, like a bottle of champagne or something, as Jace does. When you're supporting Bournemouth, um, there are certain matches that um, I mean, like all clubs, I'm sure it will bring thousands of fans out. And with that one away at Burton, we'd have usually taken a few hundred, maybe, and 1,800 turned out. There have been a few matches in our history where the whole town always gets together. Um, did that sort of give you a glimpse of maybe what possibilities we had as a club in moving forward and, you know, not becoming a big club, but, you know, growing as a club? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, as you said, the, the, the club used to have a lot of numbers travelling to, to certain away games. and you know, I think it's it's not on the fans, it's on the players. And I think that the current crop of players and, you know, the boys who've been there the last four four or five years have, have really brought out the, the best support uh, within the club because, you know, they're performing now at a level where they're being supported and everyone wants to support them kind of thing. But I, I think back then it was a real hardcore. You know, I, I do think it was a real hardcore crop um, of fans who followed us everywhere and, you know, like the pitch you showed before and you've seen the fans on, on the pitch and stuff. And as a football player, there's no better feeling than that. There really isn't a better feeling than that. I mean, it, it's absolutely crazy. And if you had said to, you know, us as players a year prior to, to this day, you know, that you're going to be followed up the country, uh, well, up, up to the Midlands, you know, by a thousand fans, just over a thousand fans, you'd been like, no chance in hell. And, you know, to have experienced that as a player and, and to play my part in, in Bournemouth history was, was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, as I said, the fans there when I was there were absolutely brilliant. And it did show where the club could go. Um, it needed some investment, it got it. And, and, you know, now it's at that level. So going up to League One, Marvin, um, there were lots of rumours circulating already then about Eddie being being nabbed by a bigger club. Was, it, was that unsettling for the players? I think it was... It was expected 
from, from, from us, you know, he had come in, uh, came in rather, you know, we had the minus 17, he, he followed the, Jimmy Quinn, who was, who was taking us down, he kept us up, he then got us promoted. Now, as a manager and as a young manager, you know, what more could he really do, you know, with us? You know, he, he had us playing at a level that was above, you know, our ability, let's be honest. Um, and he wasn't just getting that out of two or three players. He was getting it out of a whole playing squad. And that's so hard to do. Getting it out of five or six that are playing. Getting out of your starting 11. And to get it out of your 18-man squad, you know, 19-man squad, that, that shows the ilk of the man. Um, and we weren't surprised at all. I think, uh, you know, he would turn down job left, right and centre. Um, I remember one day, you know, probably tell me off for this. I'll probably get a message later telling me off. But um, I remember one day we were, uh, we were at training. And the Southampton, I think, had sat their manager. And this was when Southampton were obviously in the league one as well. Um, and there were massive, massive rumours that, you know, they wanted Eddie. Uh, and these rumours got stronger and stronger and stronger. And apparently he, he had turned it down because, you know, he wasn't willing to manage uh, the rivals, basically. You know, he, he built something at Bournemouth. He was enjoying what he was doing at Bournemouth and he wouldn't manage them. Now, at this time, I know people go, oh, yeah, that, that's really good. But at this point, Bournemouth, you know, didn't have the huge financial backing that Southampton had at this point in time. They had a, a young squad. They had the, the new stadium. They had a lot of money backing them. So that really shows, you know, that his love for the club because that is such a hard, hard job to turn down at that point, especially when you're going into to League One, the kind of unknown with us as a group because the last time we were in there, we got relegated. Um, but we, no, we weren't at all surprised that teams wanted him and we were just forever thankful that you know, he stayed with us for as long as he did. And Michael, what were your feelings when he eventually did go? It hurt. Um, you know, just at the time felt like, oh, that's, that's going to mean that we're just going to flounder again because he had come in and, and become our saviour. I was just wondering, um, Marvin, you mentioned the investment that came into the club and I think this is certainly something that uh, affected Eddie Howe's desire to stay at the club. Eddie Mitchell became the chairman at that time and he was quite a divisive character. What are your memories of his, uh, of his time at the club? Eddie was, was an honest chairman um, in terms of towards us as a player. We had dealt with Sports 6 who were let's say comical. Um, Eddie, Eddie Mitchell rather was just straight down the line with us. Um, he, was, he was demanding. He probably admit himself he probably overstepped the, the line a few times in terms of getting involved in, in football stuff that he shouldn't have been getting involved in. Um, but, you know, some people might say if you're putting your money into a football club or, or into anything, into any business, you have the right to go and, and do these things. But I, I felt that um, Eddie Mitchell, if he could have his time again at the club, he would have allowed Eddie Howe to, to manage the club uh, in his own way because he's doing a fantastic job before Eddie Mitchell came in. Um, I just felt he wanted too much power. I think he was, he, I think he was at Dorchester, the non-league club that he was involved with. Um, maybe he was able to do that there. Um, but here you had one of the best young managers in the country at the time. And, and I think, yeah, that, you know, Eddie Mitchell made a mistake. As we all do in life, I think he just overset the market a few too many times and just tried to get involved in things. Based on your time at AFC Bournemouth, we had this question. Hopefully you can hear OK. And it was submitted by uh, Cherry's fan, Ben. I'm Ben, I'm 12 and I support AFC Bournemouth and I was just wondering, what was your favourite game that you ever played in an AFC Bournemouth shirt? Thank you. I, I think the, the, the Burton game um, was massive uh, for me. 
It probably, I'll have to go back to a game that I scored. I didn't score many goals. Um, so I remember I scored against Cheltenham uh, at Dean Court. So for me personally, for a manager that hasn't got a lot of goals in his career, I'm going to I'm gonna have to give that moment. Um, very selfish in terms of, I don't even know how the game uh, played out, but I remember scoring a goal and, you know, I remember getting a few calls on the way home thinking, people were saying to me, you scored a goal? And I was like, yeah, I know, I couldn't believe it. It wasn't a bad goal either, so... That was probably my, my most favourite uh, thing I can remember in the Bournemouth shirt. Yeah, and uh, Jamie Allen, uh, he commented um, asking, uh, you know, how you enjoyed your goal at Bradford. So I can I can reveal that you did also score at Bradford as well. Um, but yeah, Jeff, you wanted to uh, speak about uh, Marvin's then move to follow Eddie to Burnley. Yeah, so... Um... Marvin, was that inevitable that you were going to follow Eddie? Did he want you to go with him? Because I understand that you, you kind of had to force the transfer through at the time against Eddie Mitchell's uh, other best wishes, really. Yeah. Um, f- firstly, just touching on, on Eddie Howe going, um, I remember the, the game, it was, we were away to Colchester and it was such a surreal thing. I think we on a Friday night and, you know, Eddie had given his, his talk to us, but he seemed a bit different. He seemed extremely emotional. And he was in the corner. And the boys were like, obviously we'd heard the rumours and whatever else, but we just thought they weren't, they weren't true. You know, there'd been rumours before about him going. And I remember he, 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 he walked out of the dressing room and then he walked back in. And I, never, I, I can't remember what the song was, but the lyrics were along the lines of like, basically saying, please don't go. If you go, we'll miss you. Something along the lines of that. And it was a song that I'd never, ever heard. And this is the God's Honest Truth. I'd never heard come up on the playlist. And it was so weird. And then he kind of went to speak, heard that, and he almost like choked up. And then he was like, I can stop the music to, to you know, whoever was playing the music. And then that's when he told us, I think it was before the game, yeah, he told us, you know, this will be my last game in charge. Um, I just want you to all know that I'm, you know, extremely proud of you all. Um, I want you to go out there and, and do the best you possibly can, and, and you know, let's let's end this era um, on a high. Um, and you know, and the boys at this point were like flipping hell, like our leaders going. We're all like really, really emotional. Um, but you know, obviously, we, we went and played the game, and then after he came on the coach and, and, and shook our hands and said, "Listen, I wish you the best of luck in your career." So at this point, you know, I, I had no no idea that you know I'd be following Eddie up the road and. You know, I'll be the first to admit me and Eddie had a few run-ins and, you know, I'm just an argumentative person, to be honest, so it's probably my fault. I argue with every manager. Um, but we used, to, we used to argue. It's always respectful. Like, I had maximum respect for him. I think he had respect for me. I just used to try and keep him on his toes, you know, and make his job a bit more difficult. Um, so when he did leave, I, I was personally thinking, you know what, he's happy to get rid of Marvin Barkley. and I didn't have to keep listening to me whining in his ear. Um, so when the, the call came to go, um, I'm pretty sure there was something released in the paper first that a bid came in, and at this point I had no idea what was going on. And I remember received the call from Eddie Mitchell um, and then Lee Bradbury, because Lee Bradbury was in charge at this point, um, saying that Burnley had bid and the bid had been rejected. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, at this point, you know, I think it was it was maybe midday, um, just just after midday, we would have trained. So I was like, okay, that's fine. As the day went on, you know, more and more bids were being made. Um, and I was getting calls now from, from both clubs. Um, Burnley had booked me uh, a flight from, uh, from obviously down south to get up to Manchester to go and undertake my medical. Um, 
but Bournemouth were, were rejecting the bids. So I remember the last call I had, or sorry, the second to last call I had with Eddie Mitchell, he was like, right, the bid's been up, say it was another £100,000. Um, we rejected that one. Um, and he was like, what's, what's your stance on it? And I said, well, you know, obviously the team had been relegated from the Premier League. Financially, it would have changed, you know, my, not only my life, but my family's life as well. Uh, well, my immediate family anyway. And he said, what's your stance on it? And I said, well, you know, if... If I can, I would want to go. I said the money's too much for me to to turn down what, what they can offer compared to what I was on now. And he said to me, "Okay, well, I'm just going to try and keep getting more money out of them." So at, at this point, I find that okay. When we spoke earlier in the day, you made it, you sound you were rejecting the bids, making it sound as if you want to keep them at the club. Now you're just trying to drive the price up. So sooner or later, you, you know you can let me go. Um, and I remember the last call, and it literally was about maybe six o'clock, half past five, and then I'll close at 11 o'clock. And he's like, right, we've accepted a bit, but you won't be able to get a flight now. Um, so uh, good luck in making it there. Mm. So I was like, oh, okay. So uh, at this point, half an hour before, I knew Bernie were coming in with another bid. So I was, I was even born to drive to medicine. My brother's driving up there. And so I said to him, okay, no, that's fine. I said, well, if you knew you wanted a price and you knew you were going to set a bid for me, why didn't you just do this earlier? You know, why, why leave it to now and then put in, you know, me in a situation where I'm, my brother's speeding up the motorway to try, try and get me there. So that was all sorted. He's like, listen, go and discuss personal time with him. I wish you the best of luck. Blah, blah, blah. There was no problem at all. I was like, okay, fine. Go up to Burnley, get there literally at 5 to 11, sign my contract with no medical because there wasn't time to do one. They go to fax the forms back to the FA, the fax machine comes. So I'm sitting there, my brother's sitting there, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, just got five speeding tickets in my car because he drove my car because I met him. <laughs> and I said, and now this club's going to go through. So the club secretary at Burnley was like, right, go back to the hotel, um, which is, sorry, go to the hotel, which is Mario, wherever it was, um, and we'll let you know if the club goes through in the morning. It got to about 11 o'clock. I remember Burnley were playing Nottingham Forest on that day, and I had a call from Burnley saying the transfer still hasn't been cleared by the FA. I was like, okay, that's fine. Then I had a call from Bournemouth saying I was fined a week's wages for missing training. Yeah. So I was like, I haven't missed training. You've accepted a bit. I've given up here. Like, this is what's happened. Like, I thought I was going to be a Burnley player by now. I have, I've missed training because I'm, I'm in Manchester. So I've got in my car, started heading back down. I've probably got an hour and a half down the road. And Bernie called me and said, right, well, FA accepted it because apparently when you send a fax and it jams, you get proof that it's tried to go through. Okay, perfect, fine. I speak to Bradders. Um, I thank him, you know, for everything that, that he had done for me in the short time I was at the club. Um, wish him the best of luck at this moment. The team's flying high. At this point, I haven't been on the internet and looking at paper or anything like that. So I've been speeding up there. I've then been sleeping. I've then been driving back. So I started to get calls from, you know, a few of the other boys. And they're like, I've seen what's in the paper. And I was like, oh, yeah, and I, I didn't have time to say that I've gone. Because I, I just assumed it said, oh, the tracks have been completed. Mm-hmm. I'm reading the stories. It, it was like, Marvin Bartley refuses to pay for Bournemouth. I was like, what? When did this happen? Like, wow. I never wanted any conversation that I had with him. refused to play. We didn't even talk about playing. It was, you know, the bids have been rejected. The, oh, okay, they're getting close now. I'm going to keep trying to drive the price up. If accepted, you can go. I never once said, oh, I'm not playing anymore. I refuse to play. 
you know, that didn't even cross my mind. That wasn't even, there wasn't even a conversation close to that. So I was thinking, wow, he's put this in the paper. The fans are probably thinking, wow, like, you know, Marvin's now refused to play, he's forced to transfer through. But really, the club just wanted the money and they wanted as much money as they could possibly get. And I was like, <laughs> I spoke to the boys. And the boys knew me, you know, they, they were my teammates for a number of years and they, and they knew me. And I was like, come on, do you really think, you know, I'm so laid back. Like, yeah, I wanted to go. Yeah, I wanted more money and it was like probably five times or six times what I was on. Um, but I wasn't refusing to play. I was just like, because Bernie actually said to me, you know, if we can't get this through now, we'll try and get you in the next window. Or I think they could loan me, because the loan window opened up a little bit after the transfer window closed. They would loan me to the next window and then, then buy me then. So there was no, for me, I didn't need to force anything through at this point, because it wasn't like, if I don't go now, I can't go for two years. I think it was seven days. Mm. So, you know, I was hugely disappointed. Um, and I get why, why he did it. Maybe it was to, you know, show the fans, oh, you know, Marvin's got to be didn't want him to go, you know, we're not a selling club. I know we're doing well in League One and to lose one of our better players. Yeah. You know, I, I think he was trying to cover his own back. I think he could have done that differently and said, you know what? Yeah. Coming through, what I've just told you now, it was changing my life, changing my family's life. I couldn't stop the boy this, of this opportunity. And I, I don't think any, you know, uh, former fan would have begrudged me that opportunity to go and do that. Because I wore my heart on the sleeve for the, for the club and I, you know, given my absolute all. So, when, you know, it's like in any football club, someone offers you six times the money you're on and, and you know, and your, and your boss starts saying, oh, you can't go. Then I was like, okay, whatever, like, I'll wait seven days. There was no, oh, I'm refusing to, refusing to play. And that was the thing that disappointed me most because I enjoyed so much of my time, or all of my time at Bournemouth. And that left a sour taste in my mouth. And I imagine that did the same for fans for a number of years until I was able to tell my own story. So, you know, that was the last bit of communication that I had with Eddie Mitchell. But, you know, I'm not really sure why that story came out um, or why he made that story up and made it came out. But, you know, people have their own, uh, their own spin on things and why they want to do certain things. Well, really appreciate your honesty, Marvin, because that, that set the record straight for a lot of fans, I'm sure. In terms of uh, your time at Burnley then, and, um, you know, we will talk a little bit about that and, of course, you know, what's happened to you since then. But from a Bournemouth fan's perspective, it seemed to be very hit and miss for Eddie, especially results on the pitch. When Burnley fans, um, you know, look back at their management staff, they look at Sean Dyche, who they've got now, and Eddie Howe sort of pales into insignificance compared to Sean Dyche. But he brought in some incredible players for Burnley. Um, but at the time, the results weren't quite there. Just explain what you thought of your time at Burnley and also Eddie and JT's time. Do you think it was a success? Um, I wouldn't say it was a success because the, the club wanted to get back to the Premier League. You know, they'd just been relegated from Premier League. It was the first year of the, the parachute payments. So a success would have been getting them promoted. One thing I'll say in, in Eddie and uh, Jace's and all the backroom teams' uh, defences, there was a, a, a toxic group of players within that dressing room. You know, and... I think what Eddie struggled with was when he was at Bournemouth and he had these younger players. And I always describe us when I speak to people about my time at Bournemouth. We were robots. You know, Eddie Howe um, wanted us to do a certain thing. He programmed us to do something and we went and did it. You know, if he could program us. If he said run for a brick wall, we'd do our utmost to run for the brick wall. At Burnley, if he said to them, could you run through the brick wall? A few would look at the brick wall, turn around and walk the other way. And that's just how they were. You know, he didn't, they were playing 
kids that were around the same age as him, maybe one or two that were older than him. And they didn't, you know, where Eddie Howe was a, a legend at Bournemouth and he was so well respected as a man, up north he, he was nobody. He was just this fresh-faced young man. And he had a lot of unprofessional professional football players. Um, and that's the best way I could describe them. And you know what? You could have put any manager into that group. If yeah. those players would have acted in the same way, you weren't going to be successful. Like you said, you brought in some fantastic players and young players, you know, Charlie Austin, uh, Junior Stanislas, who's at Bournemouth now. You know, Zavon Hines was probably one that was a bit hit or miss. You know, Ben Mee, Kieran Trippier. These fantastic young players, but the older players there just had too much of a hold on everything that was going on. And they earned so much money. They didn't care if they weren't playing or they, you know, they were playing. Um, I'll never forget when I got my first run in the team. Um, a player had been put out for me to go in. Again, the same way we talk about Eddie, or I talked about Eddie up there when he was just this nobody to them. I was a nobody. You know, I'd been on the paper Bournemouth and I was seen as Eddie Howe's love child. Me and Charlie Austin were seen that way. And it was a player. I'll never forget it. We were, we were training and, um, you know, we were doing a bit of shaping stuff. This player had been taking out team for me. And this boy just ran over to the balls and just booted the balls away when we were trying to do a training session. Now, the only way I can kind of bring you on the journey and put you, you know, into the picture of what was going on, if you imagine a Sunday league game with under fives and you're trying to control them and you've got this one kid who just wants to boot the balls and that's all he wants to do, that's what a grown man was doing. Mm. And I remember looking across and Eddie kind of looks like, where am I? Like, like what are these? What is this? And it was, it was crazy. And I remember that boy actually ended up getting back in the team because his wages were so high compared to mine. I didn't want him to disrupt the, the, the whole energy of, of, of the team. And just having people like that just meant that, you know, no matter what Eddie did, he was never going to succeed. And you know, for me, if, if my time came again, I would make the same journey because at that time it was right for me to do. I think Eddie would do exactly the same. Um, I think that, that experience his management, in his managerial career, I think that would have helped him. Um, I think we'll look back on that now and draw from the positive and the negatives from it. Um, going forward with Bournemouth but you know there's a lot more than meets the eye um, and I know Bernie supporters will be like oh you know he wasn't this he wasn't that no he had a, a corrupt bunch of players and you know a lot of right was on malfunction yeah so just a quick one before we go on to uh, Michael then who's got a question um, when we were speaking to Tommy Elphick uh, last week he said um, Eddie's man management skills are you know second to none and there were a number of players that we'd signed that didn't quite fit in with that um, philosophy. Is what you're saying, you know, you certainly don't question his man management skills at all. And it was just the players were, let's put it in layman's terms, were too big for their boots. Yeah, definitely. There, there were players there that didn't res respect him as a manager because they just, you know, they, they thought Eddie coming from a, from a lower league. Um, and I think that sums them up a lot as humans, you know. And I think a lot of those older professionals will look back on that time and that experience and be ashamed of themselves. Because, you know, they're paid to do a job. And I think they, they knew that Eddie wanted them out. I think they knew the young, fresher players that he was bringing in. And their time at the club was coming towards an end. So I think what they thought was, OK, he's doing this to us. So let's just basically try and have the last laugh. And let's just try and disrupt as much as we can before we're showing the door. And that's what they did. Um, and, you know, and, and as I said, you can have any manager in there. If those players were going to go about their work the way that they did go about it, you're never going to be successful. And don't get me wrong, we had some good results um, and we equally had some bad results, but 
but those players there didn't help it at all. And I would like to look back now and I think they would be um, ashamed of themselves of how they conducted themselves at that time. So it didn't really work out for Eddie and Jason at Burnley. I think they were there for just under two years. And in much to our delight, they came back to Dean Court and everything that's happened since has been, has been fantastic. But were you surprised when they came back down south? And also, how did that impact on your career at Burnley? I'd heard rumours uh, that they were coming back um, probably a month to six weeks before it actually got confirmed. Um, I was surprised at the time when somebody first told me, and I was like, "There's no, there's no way that's not happening." You know, he's not, he's not going back. Um, as it got closer and closer to the time, and as I said, you know, me and Eddie were, were very open and honest with each other, and, and I asked him the question, "Are you going back?" And he said, "He said maybe," which to me meant yes, Mar, but I can't tell you. Going back, so I kind of knew probably before it was confirmed for everyone else he was going back, and and for me it was in terms of my Burnley career it was the beginning and the end definitely because you know there was times up there and Eddie Wall if you ever speak to him probably admit the same you know we struggled with being up, up north and that sounds weird considering where I am now at, at that spell I struggled with being up there um, Eddie struggled with being up there. So, you know, we had uh, John Dezell, who's a fitness coach, and he was struggling as well. So a lot of the Southern people were struggling, and it just didn't feel like home. It didn't feel like Bournemouth. We didn't have the same, you know, work ethic from others that, that we wanted. Um, so, so Eddie obviously came back to Bournemouth, as he did, um, and, and I was still up there. And, and for me, it was, it was a hard time during my footballing career because I just wasn't interested in being there. Um, and that's nothing against Sean Dyche, it's nothing against anybody like that, because Sean Dyche wanted to be brilliant. Sean Dyche was brilliant with me at that point as well. I just wasn't happy up north anymore, I was missing my family um, and, and, and whatever else. So at that point, I was just like, you know what, Eddie's gone, he's the man who brought me here. He was the last thing that was actually keeping me here, because I remember I'd complained before about wanting to go back and I'd been convinced to stay. Um, but once he had gone... Uh, for me, you know, my, my time out there was, was always going to come to an end and, and it did pretty, quick, pretty quickly after. Just quickly uh, going back to Eddie, though, in terms of perhaps, you know, joining a new club and not having that same family squad mentality that he managed to instill at Bournemouth. Does that, I mean, I'm sure that these days in the Premier League, m- many football players have got their own personalities and there's probably even more of that these days would he find it a struggle to say because you know quite often he's linked with jobs albeit like at the other end of the odds like even Arsenal and Spurs do you think he'd have problems making the step up to um, a club where there are probably going to be more problems than there were even at Burnley which were championship at the time I think um, he'd have to step up to the right club I don't think he would struggle. I think he's would have learned from he would have learned from experience at Burnley. Um, I think if you look at Eddie Howe and his signings, even at Bournemouth, he's a man who gives opportunities to players. Um, you know, because they have that mindset and they want to kick on to the next level. I think, you know, the Jermaine Defoe kind of transfer at Bournemouth, you know, went sour pretty quickly. Why? Because Jermaine Defoe was coming down in terms of his career. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is something that I think Eddie struggles with when I've heard Jermaine Defoe's a brilliant guy just from people at range a brilliant guy around the training ground or whatever else but maybe he wants to play every week well at that point of all if he did and I think you know Eddie maybe struggled with 
with somebody you know kind of demanding to pay every week um and you know the, let's be honest an old professional they have to have the right mindset for you to have them within your group because i'm not a professional now and if i don't keep challenging myself and i don't have that hunger to drive myself forward i can quickly bring down the mood of the group um i think that's why i think eddie if he was to ever leave bournemouth it has to be for the right job you know again where probably an arsenal would be perfect because they can't compete financially with a Manchester City, a Liverpool, a Man United, you know, or, or even a Chelsea. Um, so he again be bringing players into there that you're given an opportunity to step up to the next level. Um, I think when you've got players that are coming down, I think that's when he struggles a bit more. Steve Hensman sent a message. Did Eddie ask you to come back with him? There was actually I wanted to come back, um, and and I'll be perfectly honest. At that point, when I was up there, I just wanted to come back down south. So it could have been to flipping Yeovil. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, there was something done in in, in, all, in the contracts that meant that you know he couldn't basically come and take players from from there instantly. Um, and to be honest, I wanted to get out of there as quickly as I possibly could, and I didn't have time to to wait around. So, and it's on the map. Where can I go? Okay, later on, it doesn't look that far. Let's give that a go. <laughs> Excellent. And when you went to Scotland, Marvin, I mean, you're, you're, it's, it's not common for English players to go up to play for, uh, for Scottish sides. Um, but you, you've had a great experience at Hibs, haven't you? Because uh, you actually won a cup final. Yeah, um, I remember the move to Hibs came about and I refused to, um, to speak to them maybe three or four times. Um, then they actually got me up on the, on the plane to go up there. And the facilities, you know, that that football club was second to none. The training ground is the best training ground I've, I've been involved in um, during my professional days. Um, yes, yeah, got a great fan base. I think, you know, they sell maybe like 13,000 season tickets, 14,000 season tickets. It's a huge football club. Um, I came up, you know, and as I do, I just, I kind of, as I looked up to water in terms of the football club, I, I got what they wanted. And, you know, it was very similar to the Bournemouth in the early days when they had a lot of players who wanted to fight for the manager. So I, I felt at home again within the dressing room. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it was a fantastic, fantastic journey for me. Um, you know, and we did win the, win the Scottish Cup that the team hadn't won for over 100 years. So we kind of went down as, as living legends. But um, no, it's, it's been fantastic. And, it, you know, it's been a, a different, you know, style of football and whatever else. And I know the Scottish game gets the pelters down south. And I used to be one of these people, but... Coming up and playing, and it's been a, it was been more difficult than I actually thought it would be. Yeah, um, and of course now you're at Livingston, and do you find that you almost you know Livingston with the size of the stadium and the fact that they've been in administration before, uh, do you see any sort of kind of relationship there with Bournemouth being like similar size clubs? Yeah, it's very similar. Um, even the, the stadium's not too dissimilar. Uh, um, so it has a, a, a lot of similarities to um, my time at Bournemouth. Um, I'm just, what, 10, 11 years older now. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's the difference for me personally. But again, you know, it's, it's kind of feels like I've gone full circle in a professional game. I say starting at Bournemouth um, with a team that had been into administration and had difficulties off the pitch. Now coming to Livingston, a team that have had the same. You know, there I was a fresh-faced uh, fresh uh, young man. Now, you know, I'm looking a bit older, a bit groggier, and I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards the way of coaching, so I'm kind of planning my exit route out of football. But no, very similar clubs. Um, again, here we've got a great work ethic, um, something that, you know, I first learned at Bournemouth. And, you know, yeah, 
things are going well. That's good stuff. Well, we'll um, we'll wrap it up very shortly, but I, I want to chuck in this question. Um, one of the biggest compliments I could pay you, Marvin, is that for many seasons, Cherries fans always cried out for a Marvin Bartley player, you know, in the middle of the park, and we'd missed that for so many seasons. But this season, we've we've possibly got a midfield pairing that maybe fulfills that criteria. So, with this in mind. Which of the current AFC Bournemouth players um, would you love to cherry pick and have in the Livingston side, you know, when you come back? In, in the current ball seem to be Adam Wilson. Um, you know, strikers, that's why we want to be strikers when we're younger. Strikers get all the plaudits, you know. Strikers make all the money and having him in this team would make me more money because I get more win bonuses. So, <laughs> Callum, if you're, if you're listening, lad, have you come. <laughs> <laughs> You know, come come and enjoy it. Happy crown with your mates. Jeff. Do you think Jefferson Lerma watched tapes of you play Marvin and modelled his game on you? <laughs> I've enjoyed watching him play. Uh, I think he gets more bookings than I do. Though. I had him in my hand. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> and I was like, okay, he's pay big money for this guy. He's going to get him in my dream team. He's relatively cheap. And very quickly, I learned that this man was only good for yellow cards because he went around smashing people. So he's actually my favourite player because... He's the closest, like you say, to how I used to play. Obviously, he's at a lot higher level. But uh, I do enjoy his tackles uh, an awful lot. So, yeah, maybe he's a young Marvin Bartley. Just want us a lot richer and a lot better. So, you've had a, a good career, Marvin. You've got a lot of achievements to look back on. It's been quite eventful as well. Um, and hopefully, you'll be playing for a few more years. But have you had any thoughts about what you do in the future when you hang up your boots? Yeah, um, I have. And... You know, uh, some quite owe Eddie a lot to again. Um, he told me my career would go very quickly. And at this point, I was 22, 23, and I looked at him and thought, what the hell are you on about? Um, but since the age of probably 24, 25, um, I've always thought about the next step for me, which is coaching. Um, you know, I have endless sessions and scenarios. I even have the administration scenario in, in my book, uh, the black book that I call it. Um, so, yeah, I've been building up ever since then to take the next step and to go into coaching. I'm doing my, I've done my UA for B. I do my UA for A in the summer. Um, so that, that's the next step for me. I coach the Liverpool Reserve team. So that's the, the step that I want to take, you know, in football. And if I can kind of, you know, achieve half as much as Eddie Howe has in, in his management career to date, then I'll, I'll be a happy man. But that's what I'm doing now. And I've used this lockdown to really take myself to the next level. I've been doing a lot of reading, um, doing a lot of sessions online, coaching sessions and stuff. So that's the plan. Um, I plan to go into, into into coaching and managing. And I've always said, you know, as a player, I was limited in my ability. You know, I was never, no matter how much I practised, I was never going to be a, a Messi or a Ronaldo. But in a coaching front, I don't believe there's, a, there's a, a glass roof to what I can do. As long as I keep evolving as a man and as a coach, I can, I can go and manage at the highest level, which is obviously the Premier League in England for me. And I thoroughly believe that I'll achieve that one day. Interesting. Now, we've got a few questions that um, came in, so we'll just rattle on through these and I'll, I'll try to put them in the way in a way whereby you can answer them relatively quickly because um, I'm sure we could talk football all night. Um, but Steve Butler said, how influential has Eddie Howe been in your personal uh, coaching methodologies. Say if we had to put, you know, like a percentage on it, you know, what, how much has Eddie contributed to Marvin Bartley, you know, the footballer today? Out of all the members I've had, I've had, he's contributed the most. Um, you know, he's 
first and foremost as a player, he made me a better player. Um, he made me a better man, and I think he'll make me um, help you know me mould into the coach and manager I want to be. Because I'll take some points from him, um, as I will with every uh, every other manager I've had, good or bad. Um, but I think I'll take the most from him. And you know, although I'm going to be my own man in terms of how my style and stuff, because I've always said you know there's no point Marvin Barley trying to copy the uh, Eddie Howe blueprint because I'll be second best at it. So if I make the Marvin Bartley blueprint, I'll be the best at it because I'll be first and foremost the first person to do it, and I'll be the original person to do it. And you know, that's 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 the kind of uh, mindset I have. But no, he he played a huge part in in my life as a footballer, and he will be with me being a coach. Yeah, and also uh, oh, uh, so this is oh six C dancer on YouTube said um you're, he's interested to hear if you uh, managed to. See any AFC Bournemouth games live, and also, do you keep in contact with any of the previous or current players at all? Um, yeah, I keep in contact with with all the boys basically that I play with. Um, I'm not saying on a, on a you know daily basis, um, but you know over the last probably two or three weeks, I've spoken to maybe eight or nine of the boys. You know, I spoke to Jal, Piercy, um, Feeney within the last two days, um, Anton as well actually. So yeah, I do keep in contact, and that's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to get at. That that group of players, um, you know, not only as footballers but as men, were brilliant for me. And that is why we all keep in contact because it wasn't, you know, a pretend bromance kind of thing that you hear in football people move on. It was a real deal. And we all do keep in contact, you know, some shape or form, even to this day. And uh, finally, Rob Lee uh, also said, considering the rise of the club, is there a part of you that have, you know wishes you'd stayed? I think hindsight's a wonderful thing, um, and if I knew Max Dillon was bringing in the millions, and uh, maybe I, I, I would have stayed with, uh, I, I could have left. But um, at that point in time, it was Eddie Mitchell, and I had enough of being shouted at by a chairman, to be honest. So, mm. so you know, I thought I'd let him cash in and, and come take the money, <laughs> and off he went. So, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, and you know, I really did enjoy my time at Bournemouth, but I, I enjoyed it. I loved it. And, you know, it ended when it did. And I'll never look back in, in any shape or form at, you know, that, that time, I think, well, I should have stayed. Because I had a great, great time at that football club. And if I wouldn't have left and gone to the other football clubs I have gone to, it may be have, have affected me as a coach and manager going forward. Because I wouldn't have learned from the Sean Dyches. I wouldn't have won the Scottish Cup and so forth. So, brilliant time. But, yeah, you know, I, I left. And I don't really look back for any, any regret. Although... You know, it is what it is. And my next move wasn't very successful, but, you know, it happens in football. Yeah, good stuff. Well, Jeff, uh, we certainly loved watching Marvin on the pitch, didn't we? Yeah, and I I think you've been a fantastic interviewee tonight, Marvin. There's just some great, great stories. And thank you so much for your honesty. It's been absolutely riveting to listen to you. Oh, man, that was brilliant. Uh it was so great to have Marvin on. And again, apologies for the crackly audio. That was a bit of a lesson for us, a bit of a learning curve. Unfortunately, that was done live as well. So can you imagine my face during that thinking, oh my God. But it actually came out all right. And we get some, we got some really good feedback from it. And uh, despite the audio issues, you could, you know, you could tell what he was, uh, he was talking about. And yeah, the, the stories about Brett Pittman and then sinking down in his seat after that loss at Morecambe and having to walk past Eddie Howe. All of those were absolute gems and uh, we really appreciated his honesty. So we hope you enjoyed that. Good news, there are more interviews to come.
So this is only the third lockdown interview that we've put out. But yeah, so many more to come, including Matt Ritchie, Mark Pugh, Brett Pittman, Jan Kermigan, Steve Fletcher, Trevor Watkins. I could go on. Plus some incredible names from the 80s as well. And some really good knowledge shared by some of the press that cover AFC Bournemouth and the Premier League, including Kelly Summers, Chris Temple and Peter Rutzler too. So stay tuned because there will be dropping interviews, hopefully until the very start of the Premier League season. But for now, if you've enjoyed this, we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a thumbs up or a five stars or whatever on your podcast app. And do remember, if you want to see these interviews first, then head over to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash AFCB podcast. But for now, we'll see you next time on the Lockdown Interviews. Dykes lofts it in. Deflects off a player and it's stabbed towards goal and it's in. And it's Marvin Bartley of all people who scored here. The former Hibs man enjoys that one in front of the home supporters. There's a little deflection between two players and it fell very kindly to Marvin Bartley. Podcast Network.